where the dawn of the east meets the twilight of the west and the cool of the north touches the calm of the south and the transcendent power of God touches earth in the humility of love right here and just now where the head of the Charles reaches out to the heart of the country, we gather for this baccalaureate service of worship to illumine the imagination by the beauty of God, to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to warm the heart by the love of God, to devote the will to the purposes of God. We welcome those who are present in our nave here at 735 Commonwealth Avenue. For those of our radio congregation listening across National Public Radio in New England, WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe at WBUR.org. Today, in this baccalaureate service for the class of 2010, we especially welcome to leadership in our service our president, Dr. Robert A. Brown, our provost, Dr. David Campbell, and our guest speaker, Dr. Wafa El-Sadr, about whom we will say a bit more in a few minutes. This is as beautiful a morning as we could have hoped for in New England, and if there has been a brighter one, I do not know which one it was, and if there is to be a finer one, I don't know what it would be, except maybe that long off, far away, last day when the trumpet will sound, and the stars will fall from their places. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, let us stand in the praise of God. Let us pray. 
Lord, we come together this morning to worship you and to seek your blessing upon us. You, who are the God of all goodness and truth, look kindly upon us, your people gathered here today. We come with joy to thank you for the abundant gifts you have already poured out upon our graduates. We celebrate with them their accomplishments and achievements, and we share with them, their families, friends, and professors, the hopes and dreams of futures bright with promise. O God of justice and compassion, inspire these graduates and all of us gathered here to use the gifts of intellect and learning you have entrusted to us in the pursuit of a more humane and just world. May we devote ourselves anew to the pursuit of loving you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, all good things begin in you and continue with your help. And so we ask you to grace us with open minds and receptive hearts to what we will hear this morning and to act upon it with determination and love. All glory and praise to you forever and ever. Amen. A lesson from the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 7, verses 15 to 22. May God grant me to speak with judgment and to have thoughts worthy of what I have received, for he is the guide even of wisdom and the corrector of the wise. For both we and our words are in his hand, as are all understanding and skill in crafts. For it is he who gave me unerring knowledge of what exists to know the structure of the world and the activity of the elements, the beginning and the end and the middle of times, the alternations of the solstices and the changes of the seasons, the cycles of the year and the constellations of the stars, the natures of animals and the tempers of wild animals, the powers of of spirits and the thoughts of human beings, the varieties of plants and the virtues of roots. I learned both what is secret and what is manifest. For wisdom, the fashioner of all things, taught me the word of the Lord. salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? 
is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. may be listening to this service from afar, along a riverbank, sitting alongside the coastline, driving in your automobile due east or west on Route 90, or at home as the day begins. Let me set the scene for those listening from afar. Before me, I wish every one of you could have the view that one has from this pulpit. It is a beautiful Visage. It is a chance to see those about to graduate with their friends, their spouses and families, their parents, those who mean most to them. It is a chance to see the gathered leadership of our university preparing for yet a further day of celebration in graduation. Those who have entered through this venerable portal have 
stop for a minute to see John Wesley. Uh, he's not speaking, for he's in sculpture and he's in stone. But if he could say something, and we'll lift his own words on his behalf, he would say, do all the good you can at all the times you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Gathered here are those women and men, younger and older, who are committed to the expansion of good around the globe. We have friends from near and far. The hymn which we did just sing was written by Carl Daw, who is on the faculty of the School of Theology here at Boston University. And I notice in our congregation a dear friend and graduate of some years ago of the School of Theology, a retired bishop from Georgia, the Reverend Dr. Woody White, and we welcome him. And by example, through him, all who are here for this particular celebration. In 2007, we welcome to this pulpit Mr. Bill Kovac as our baccalaureate speaker, and in 2008, Dr. William Haling. And last year, many will recall, we welcomed the Reverend Dr. Gloria White Hammond. And into that ongoing and emerging parade, today we are extremely happy to welcome as our guest speaker, Dr. Wafa El Sadr. Let me tell you a little bit about her, and particularly for those who are listening from some distance. Dr. El Sadr directs both the International Center for AIDS Care and Treatment Programs, ICAP, and the Global Health Initiative at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. She also is Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at Columbia, and for two decades led the Division of Infectious Diseases at Harlem Hospital Center where she has been instrumental in the development of an internationally recognized comprehensive HIV, AIDS, and tuberculosis program focused on service, on training, and on research. Daughter of a biochemist and a forensic pathologist, she grew up in Cairo and earned her medical degree from Cairo University, where both of her parents taught. She came to the United States in 1976, expecting to return to Egypt, but the emergence of the AIDS and tuberculosis crises presented research and treatment opportunities that led her to stay. As ICAP director, Dr. El Sadr leads a staff of more than 800 people who provide technical assistance in resource-limited countries for HIV prevention and treatment programs as well as related conditions. Dr. El Sadr also holds a Master of Public Health in Epidemiology from the Mailman School and a Master in Public Administration from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. She is a member of the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences, certified in internal medicine and infectious diseases. She serves on a number of United States and international public health and research committees. In 2008, Dr. El Sadr was named a MacArthur Foundation Fellow in recognition of her creativity, originality, and potential to make important contributions for the future. Will you join me in welcoming the baccalaureate speaker for 2010, Dr. Wafa El Sadr. Thank you very much for the invitation and for this very warm welcome. Uh, I'm very honored and privileged to be here to join you today on such a wonderful day. Since I was asked to speak to you, I've been thinking about similar experiences that I've had occasions when I was in the audience uh, in your shoes. And my thoughts return uh, to a day many years ago at Cairo University in Egypt uh, where I was sitting in a stifling hot auditorium waiting to receive my medical school diploma. I don't really remember if there were any speeches. I don't really remember who was sitting on either side of me. I do remember one thing, though. I could not wait for that ceremony to end. <laughs> I was sitting on the edge of my seat, a sprinter poised for the start of the race. 
Little did I know that memories of those wonderful student years would stay with me for many, many years to come. Little did I know also how these formative years in Egypt uh, would shape my approach and to the challenges to come. And little did I know that this would not be a sprint, but rather a very long marathon. It is a convention, almost a cliche, uh, to tell graduating students to follow their dreams. And so it's quite easy to dismiss this as verbiage, um, to dust, uh, dust it off for the occasion, not to be taken seriously. But the essence, the core of the message holds. Do you have dreams and ideas already today? Will you have those dreams later? And when you do, will you listen to those dreams, embrace them? Will you do, will you have the fortitude to pursue them? Because fortitude you will need. Great, great ideas often seem implausible. Smart colleagues will try to persuade you and give apparent cogent reasons why these ideas are infeasible, maybe even reckless. Rather than encountering a world that encourages you to dream big, you may find yourself mired in a culture of no. One where fear of failure means that great ideas don't even get a try. You will have to decide, sometimes on a daily basis, whether to listen to the naysayers from whom you may learn, and when instead to believe in your own vision and have the fortitude to push forward. I will tell you a little, about, a little about my own story and how I've used my background to guide me as I pursued my own path. In reality, looking back, I can definitively say that the HIV AIDS epidemic has defined my professional life. The numbers are simply numbing. Currently, about 20, 33 million individuals with HIV are living in the world, two-thirds of them in Africa, a million right here in the United States, a hidden and forgotten epidemic. To put this in perspective, the number of people with HIV in the US is about twice the population of the city of Boston. Just this past year, there were two million deaths globally due to HIV, and about 15 million children have lost one or both of their parents due to this disease. And just this past year, almost three million people got newly infected about half a million children. Every single day, there are about 7,000 individuals around the world who get HIV infected. That's every single day, 7,000 individuals. These numbers are overwhelming. What can one possibly do about these numbers and this situation? In the early years of this past decade, I remember walking down the hall of a rambling public hospital in South Africa Bed after bed were occupied by desperately ill young people with sunken faces, ashen skin, and glistening eyes that stared silently at me, a visitor. Between the beds, others lay on thin mattresses on the floor in very similar shape, women, men, and children. On that visit, the deathly silence of the wards affected me strongly. How could this silence be in Africa, a continent that to me always buzzed with the cadence of melodious languages and vibrant music. All I could think of at that time was that this did not have to be so. It just did not have to be so. We, in wealthy countries, by the mid-1990s, already knew how to prevent transmission from a pregnant woman to her baby. We knew how to treat people with HIV AIDS. We had the cocktail of effective medicines that could save lives. But unfortunately, these medicines were not available to the many millions who desperately needed them in poor countries. I became determined that something must be done to remedy this situation. But in reality, it was not easy. Again and again, we heard the word no. No, the medicines were too expensive and had too many side effects. No, poor people in Africa would never take the medicines on a daily basis, and so resistant strains of virus would run rampant around the world. No, it would not be possible to implement because healthcare workers were scarce, and even those healthcare workers that were around and available could not possibly learn to take care of this complicated condition. No, there were no laboratories, no roads, and only weak health systems. No, there's rampant corruption. No, I was told no one would show up due to the high levels of stigma in these societies. In fact, the word misguided was used to describe the plans that I and my colleagues began to propose and work on. 
Yet it was simply wrong to deprive people of something that could prevent or alleviate their suffering. Over the past few years, with support from colleagues and partnership with many people around the world, we've been able to establish models of comprehensive HIV prevention, care, and treatment that build on the intrinsic commitment and the innovative spirit so evident in the countries where we work. With a family-focused approach, a commitment to building in-country capacity, and a vision for quality and excellence, these programs have brought life-saving care and treatment to close to a million individuals in Africa. Now, how was this accomplished in such a short period of time? The momentum came from a sense of urgency and passion on the ground. I think back to a visit to a rural clinic a few years ago. A proud and eager nurse feverishly showed me copies of training certificates that she had just accumulated. This, she asserted, was evidence of the readiness, her readiness to treat HIV. She had written down pages and pages of names of people from her community that she knew needed treatment urgently. She kept saying to me again and again, we're ready, we're ready. People like this nurse were not waiting for fancy buildings or beautiful furniture. They understood deeply that this was an emergency. HIV was killing their families, their friends, and their communities. They passionately wanted to do something about it. They would not take no for an answer. It was the people on the ground, whether leaders in the Ministry of Health or a lone health worker in a one-room health post in a remote village who were most eager to succeed. Today, if you drive down a bumpy road in a remote rural district in Mozambique or Rwanda, you might come across a crowd of people outside the health center. Some are sitting on benches with babies strapped to their bellies. Others are scattered in the yard, sitting on the grass in the sun, waiting their turn to be seen. Inside, there's a welcome din. There is no silence anymore. A welcome din with more people standing and sitting, some crowding around nurses as they weigh babies, others speaking quietly with counselors regarding their newly prescribed medicines. At the other end of the clinic are very proud clerks pulling charts from neatly organized shelves. And bustling between all are peer educators, themselves people with HIV, who are working to help others like themselves. You may want to stop one of those peer educators to ask them about their story and their work. The story often begins in a hospital bed, similar to the situation I described to you earlier. You may hear a tale of abandonment by family, then a precious chance offered for treatment, followed by recovery, and an opportunity provided to become a peer educator. You're likely to witness deep commitment and pride and knowledge and wisdom. That peer educator may share with you how she takes a newly diagnosed pregnant woman by the hand, providing her with comfort, information, and hope, how she escorts this woman to where she can get care for herself and protection for her baby. You might even find yourself trekking up a narrow dirt path in the hills with another peer educator as he makes a home visit to check on someone who didn't show up for clinic. In the voices and stories of these peer educators, you'll hear the sound of triumph over adversity of determination and of commitment. For all the no's we heard in the past, all you have to do is meet one of these individuals to realize what is possible. It is in these settings that people I meet in Africa often say to me, ah, things must be so different in New York. I smile and tell them there are really more similarities than differences between peoples. In fact, in the early years of the epidemic in Harlem, I distinctly remember hearing again and again the word no. No, poor people were not worthy of services. No, gay men deserve to get HIV infection and do not deserve services or resources. No, drug users are irresponsible and will sell their medicines on the streets. No, poor women with HIV should not keep their babies. No, one could not be able to do research in these settings. But despite these naysayers, we carefully listened to our patients as they shared with us their struggles and needs. And step by step, we put together the mosaic of services that shaped the comprehensive HIV program that was built at Harlem Hospital, one of the first in this nation. And a program that included many of the same principles that have guided our work in Africa. It was also in Harlem that I first realized the power of persons with HIV. I clearly remember the day a young woman that I was taking care of who really shocked me. She told me that HIV was the best thing that ever happened to her. 
She could see both shock and surprise on my face. How could that possibly be, I wondered. She went on to tell me how HIV brought purpose to her life, helped her overcome years of addiction and despair, gave her the strength to find her long-lost children to recreate her family. HIV motivated her to get her GED and go on to college. She did not take no for an answer. It was that moment that spurred me to establish the first peer program in Harlem years before the efforts in Africa. Yet, our work in confronting HIV and AIDS is far from done. There's a tremendous misconception that the emergency is over, that the epidemic in, in our midst in the US does not exist, that we have vanquished it. In addition, there's always the impetus to move on to other issues. And this threatens to destroy the achievements to date and to do millions to a terrible fate. Thus, we can't rest on our laurels. The struggle must continue, and our work must go on. We simply cannot take no for an answer. It has been years since those early days in Egypt where I started my story. Looking back, maybe it was the indelible mark of growing up in a poor country that motivated my journeys in Harlem and in Africa. Maybe it was witnessing the multitude of misfortunes that befell people, the fragility of life, the many diseases that prevailed that we so rarely see today in this country. Friends with polio, cousins with tuberculosis, my friend next door who developed meningitis and died. People who had so little but somehow overcame adversity every day despite all the odds. You each have your own unique experiences that you will build on. Look back and seek your motivations and your sources of strength then stride ahead and be ready to move mountains. Along the way, be humble, be kind, be generous. That will be a lasting legacy. Listen carefully before you act. Reflect. Do not judge unjustly. Be patient. Let others find the answers. Inform and guide. But step back and let others lead. And remember, whether your path takes you to Harlem or to Harare, Zimbabwe, or even if you stay right here in Boston, never succumb to the culture of no. Believe in your wisdom and have the personal strength to push forward with your own ideas. You will make a difference. Congratulations and thank you.
dear friends, as we pray for our graduates this morning, we turn to the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman, the first dean here at Marsh Chapel, to guide us in prayer. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Let us pray. I need your sense of time. Always I have an underlying anxiety about things. Sometimes I am in a hurry to achieve my ends and am completely without patience. It is hard for me to realize that some growth is slow, that not all processes are swift. I cannot discriminate between what takes time to develop and what can be rushed because my sense of time is dulled. Oh, to understand the meaning of perspective, that I may do all things with a profound sense of leisure of time. I need your sense of order. The confusion of the details of living is sometimes overwhelming. The little things keep getting in my way, providing ready-made excuses for failure to do and be what I know I ought to do and be. Much time is spent on things that are not very important, while significant things are put in an insignificant place in my scheme of order. I must unscramble my affairs so that my life will become order. O God, I need your sense of order. I need your sense of the future. Teach me to know that life is ever on the side of the future. Keep alive in me the future look, the high hope. Let me not be frozen either by the past or the present. Grant me, O patient one, your sense of the future, without which all life would sicken and die. Amen.
Thanksgiving, we take with us a summons to service and this word of blessing. May the sun show warm and bright on you, your darkest night a star shine through, your dullest morn a radiance brew, and when dusk comes, God's hand to you. Amen.
Thank you. 